Welcome to the Exam Room Rambles Podcast, where veterinarian Dr. Tracy Westergaard shares the same tips, opinions, and explanations she gives you in the exam room, only without barking dogs or hissing cats. We're really glad you're here. Enjoy the show. Hello, and thanks for tuning in to Exam Room Rambles. Today, I'm going to talk about something that seems very basic, and yet I realize that we don't always tell you what we're doing when we're doing it, and that's the physical exam. So I am blessed to have been at Marshall Animal Clinic for over 20 years, and so many of the clients that I've seen, I have seen them have multiple dogs and have an established relationship with them, that sometimes in the exam room, I get to chit-chatting about other things like the most recent local football game or where their kids are at in school and, and stuff like that. And I don't always say what I'm doing as I'm doing an actually pretty thorough physical exam. So today I'm just going to go through step-by-step from the time I walk in the exam room and what I'm doing, what I'm looking for when I assess your pet, even if I'm not saying it at the time of the exam. And I got to say thank you. Thank you for trusting that I am being thorough, even if I'm not explaining what's going on at the time. I really do enjoy those once or twice visits where I get to talk and see people that I don't always see on a social or in a social setting. And honestly, if this is the first time that I have met you in an exam room or your pet or a new pet, I'm going through the same process. I can practically do this in my sleep. So the first thing I do when I walk in the room is I read the room. And we all do this in everyday life. I catch a vibe, as kind of cheesy and woo-woo as that sounds. I can look at a pet, a dog or a cat. And if I say dog, actually all this applies to dog or cat. And I can tell almost immediately, is this dog scared? Is he happy? Is he overstimulated? Is he nervous but nice? Like, they send off a vibe. And honestly, you do too. I can tell if you're nervous, scared, in a hurry, have had a bad day. That's something that comes with years of working on patients that can't talk, is you really learn to use your gut feeling, your intuition, and all of the nonverbal communication. So I, after I have assessed your dog in literally one second, as far as what I'm up against from a, a temperament point of view, I will decide if this is a little dog, I'm going to put him on the table. This is partly to save my body. And just the act of being on a table often makes animals kind of stand still. I'm not going to say afraid, but yeah, that's not the right word. They're not afraid to be on the table. But it is kind of a non-physical restraint. They know they're up high. Now, we do have an occasional dog. Usually, it's a border collie or something that will try to dive off the table because they're very athletic. But most dogs, when you put them up there, they stay put. Now, my cutoff for putting dogs on the table is about 60 pounds. If I have a really hyper dog, a dog that wants to run around the exam room, a lot of times I will put them up on the table because my technician can restrain them better on the table. And I'm not getting any younger. My body has some aches and pains and getting up and down off the floor a million times or chasing a dog around on my knees is just too much for me. And then sometimes if they have a retractable leash on, we're just getting tangled. And this is a side note. I don't know a single veterinarian or dog trainer that supports the use of a retractable leash. 
They are actually drain. <laughs> Why can't I talk this morning? They are actually dangerous. We have seen injuries with our staff members. Uh, poor Janice, she like dislocated her thumb, had to wear a cast because of her attractable leash. Dogs get tangled of them. They get rope burn, and honestly, it promotes poor manners in dogs. And when it comes to a dog really wanting to get away, they run to the end of that leash, yanks on their neck, and that's just not good either. So um, side note, we're not fans of retractable leashes. No one in dog training or veterinary medicine is. So I already feel like I'm five minutes into this and I haven't even talked about the physical exam. I'm going to have to pick up the pace. So We'll put a bigger dog on the table too, just honestly more for my body. If the dog is really scared and nervous, sometimes we'll stay on the floor. Again, it's one of those things we decide in each individual case. I don't make a decision before I go in the room whether or not I'm going to put the dog on the table. Once we have the dog up on the table, we're going to make some assumptions. We're going to assume this is a super friendly, super happy super trusting dog, and I don't need to worry about the safety of me or my staff doing this physical exam. Cats too. Are we ever really safe examining a cat? Yeah, we are. There's some good cats out there. I'm being silly. So the first thing I'm going to do is I usually lay my hands on either side of the dog's head and neck, kind of to say hello and look at them, and they can see my face too. We learned during COVID, it was really hard for us to wear masks in the clinic. Dogs read our expressions on our face and they want to see us. They want to see that we're relaxed and happy and non-threatening. So I take a look at that dog, let the dog look at me. And as I'm doing that, I am assessing for symmetry. I am looking to make sure the eyes are equal from right to left, that one eye isn't more watery, that one lid doesn't have turned out. I'm looking to see if there's any little um, mebomian gland cysts, which we call them eyelid warts. They are not eyelid warts, but we see them very commonly. I'm looking to see if the nose, the nasal planum is crusty at all, if it is equal from right to left. Rodney, who you've seen if you've watched our YouTube video, he's got one side of his nose that is very crusty and one is very normal. That crusty is actually hyperkeratosis. I'm assessing the musculature on the forehead. We and dogs and cats have muscles on their heads. That's how they move their ears. And it's really common for those muscles to deteriorate early in cancer and with weight loss. That is called cachexia. And though I wouldn't say it's specific to cancer, when we see that on an old dog that comes in, inside, we're dying inside and thinking, oh shit, this dog's got something bad. Anytime we see that musculature on the head. So I'm probably going to go straight to the teeth. Um, I just flip the gums quick, look at the canines, if the dog tolerates it, which this is a happy, friendly dog. I'm going to look at the back teeth. I don't always force the jaw open. I usually do on a cat because cats can have a, a stomatitis or really red inflammation in the back of their mouth and throat that we don't necessarily see in dogs. But I'm going to assess those teeth. And I'm almost always going to comment on teeth because teeth are one of the most important things, along with body weight or body condition, that's going to improve quality of life and longevity in your pet. Teeth good nutrition, good body weight. Like if I had to pick a couple things, those are so important. The next thing I'm going to do is flip up the ears and just look at them grossly. And when I say grossly, I mean without any kind of special tools or magnification. And I may sniff the ears. I do that a lot. My nose is better at diagnosing certain things, especially early in the disease process with ears than my eyes are. 
sometimes I'm going to stick my finger in there and pull my finger out and discreetly take a sniff or at least look at the discharge on my finger. If I need to demonstrate that to you, I'll often put a Kleenex around my finger and sweep. So I'm going to do that before I use any kind of tools. It also helps me assess pain in the dog if my finger is in there and the dog cries in pain, yelps, um, a back leg starts to move. I know that, okay, I'm going to have to be really careful sticking my otoscope in their ear because my face is going to be close to them. And if they are painful and I hit a sore spot, I could literally get a bite on my face. Checking dog's ears with our scopes is one of the most dangerous things we do in the exam room. But remember, this is a happy-go-lucky, friendly dog. So I'm going to pop the otoscope head onto my light source, and I'm going to straighten out the ear canal because dog's ear canals are L-shaped. And I'm going to look down in that ear, and I'm looking for redness, inflammation, and I'm looking for a nice, pale, opaque eardrum. Sometimes we see little hairs down there that can be irritating and mimic an infection. We rarely see tumors down there, um, but we'll see if it's especially waxy or whatnot. In cats, anytime we have a cat with an upper respiratory infection or recurrent infection, we're looking for a polyp. I just had a polyp last week. They're super cool, kind of. Um, Not if you're a cat, though. So after I've assessed the ears and this dog, we're going to assume everything is great. Sometimes I'll be like, hey, ears look great. Sometimes I just keep talking about Friday's football game. So now I'm going to take the head off my otoscope and put on the ophthalmoscope head. And I have already kind of flipped the lids earlier and made sure that the sclera was not red, looked for symmetries, looked for one eye that's tearing more than the other. I've made sure the pupils are even in black. Now I'm going to grab that scope and I'm going to take a quick look in the eyes. And with that scope, I'm looking to see the back of the eye, the retina, and the blood vessels. And then as a general rule, if I can see in, they can see out. If there is any degree of cataract or more severe nuclear sclerosis, which is an age-related change where their eyes get cloudy, a lot of people think that's cataracts. It's actually not. They're two different things, but we use those terms very loosely. Now, often congenital cataracts, which are cataracts that dogs are born with, are early ones. I can sometimes see them without the scope. I actually just, the light from overhead hits it just right. As far as that nuclear sclerosis, that old age (laughs) change in the eye, I don't need anything special to see that. And I almost always comment on that one when I see it. So now we're moving to the rest of the body. I'm going to put my scopes away. I'm going to put my stethoscope in my ears. And you maybe don't think about this, but if you're a talker the way I'm a talker, when I'm trying to listen to your pet's heart and you're talking or telling a story, I'm sorry, I'm not listening. (laughs) I'm listening to your dog's heart. So I usually start with the left side. Um, If we're going to hear any kind of Acquired murmur, secondary to say dental disease, which is super common in these toy breeds, small dogs, your Yorkies, your Chihuahuas, your Schnauzers, anything tiny like that. We're going to hear that on the left side. And then sometimes I move to the right side and listen to the right side. I'm listening for murmurs, arrhythmias, just sometimes to be able to hear the heart. There is a condition called cardiac tamponade and sometimes other conditions where we have fluid in the chest where we can't hear the heart. And then I'm going to listen to the lungs, and I'll listen on both sides. And this can be really challenging in cats that are purring and super friendly. It's actually hard to hear the heart in a cat that is purring, or if we have a panting dog. 
So you'll see sometimes me or my technician will hold the mouth shut to stop panting while we listen. And in that case, I listen pretty quick. I don't always mind when a dog is panting when I'm listening to their lungs, but if they're panting, I can't hear their heart good. So that's why we're holding your dog's shut mouth shut during that procedure is because we're listening. So I don't always count respiration rates or a heart rate while I'm in the room unless something seems out of the ordinary. Like I have a pretty good feel. Is this heart rate really slow given the circumstances or is this heart rate really fast given the circumstance? So I don't necessarily record an exact number. Same with respirations. I mean, we can tell if a pet's like struggling to breathe and in distress, but so many times we have panting dogs that increase respirations in the exam room just because they're expressing some excitement or anxiety. If we have concerns about an increased respiration rate, like for example, in congestive heart failure, we're going to have you count that at home. And we would tell you about that. So remember, this is a happy, healthy, normal dog on a routine exam that we're pretending to talk about. So at this point, I'm going to kind of roll my hands over the ribs and probably comment on body condition. The ideal body condition is five out of nine. That's the scale we use. And we usually don't tell you a body condition score, though we do document it in the record. We just tell you, yeah, your dog looks good. This is great. Or this is your pet's healthy range between 50 and 60 pounds. You're on the high end of the range. Be careful moving forward. Maybe switch to a low fat food. We want to be able to feel ribs, but not see them. So there are other spots in the body where we assess whether or not they're too fat, but I usually, my go-to is over the ribs and over the spinous process. Now over the spinous process too, which is over the back, that also tells me a little bit about muscling also, which anytime we have a pet losing muscle, I think, okay, do we have some arthritis that they're less active or is there a disease condition that is causing them to lose muscle? So I pay attention to all that. And of course, I'm looking at the coat. Is this a healthy coat? Is it shiny? Is it full? Is it patchy? Are we losing hair? Is there dandruff? All those things I am assessing as I run my hands over your pet's coat, your their thorax, their hind end, everything. I'm also feeling for little lumps and bumps. Now on any older dog, and I should really be asking on younger dogs, we do see lumps and bumps in younger dogs too. I'm going to ask if you or the groomer has felt anything. You guys are the ones petting your pets several times a day. Groomers are usually going over them, you know, every centimeter of their body that they're going to be the first ones to find lumps and bumps. So I usually ask, but I'm also looking to, I'm also feeling under the neck, in the armpits, in the groin and behind the stifles for any kind of enlarged lymph nodes. I do this on every dog. Um, One of the more common cancers we see is lymphosarcoma and we do see it in young dogs. Lymph nodes can also be enlarged for things like puppy strangles or just infection. I don't always say that I'm doing that, but I can tell you I am checking lymph nodes on all of your pets every time I do an exam. The next thing I usually go to is I feel their, their thighs. Now, I'm not necessarily putting their hips through a range of motion, but I am feeling the left side compared to the right side to see if they are symmetrical. If we have a dog that is maybe torn excruciate, has some arthritis, has some low back pain, often we develop subtle asymmetries. And if one leg has less muscling, I might further investigate, further question, etc. Then I'll reach around and I will feel both stifles, especially in an athletic dog, um, a hunting dog, 
Border Collies Labs, uh, okay, any dog, every dog, because one of the most common causes of hind limb lameness that we see and eventually leads to arthritis is a torn ACL. An ACL can be tweaked, it can be stretched, it can be a partial tear, or it can be a complete tear. And it's not something that necessarily happens in dogs as a catastrophic injury, though we do see that. It can be a slow, chronic re-injury, re-injury, re-injury. And there are certain things that we can feel when we're palpating that indicate that's been a problem. On little dogs and sometimes cats, we have luxating patellas. So on every little dog, for sure, I'm going to wiggle those kneecaps and see if they stay where they're supposed to in that patella groove or if I can pop them out. While I'm back there, I am going to flip up the tail and take a look at the anus. There are certain signs that your dog has been licking back there, like saliva staining. And if we do have an anus licker, I think, okay, does this dog have anal gland issues or could it possibly have an underlying food allergy? I'm also going to look at the vulva in the confirmation. We frequently see inverted vulvas or hooded vulvas, and they can predispose pets to urinary tract infections, or they can just be a little crap trap. They can get a vaginitis. We really see problems in older female obese dogs that can't get back there to groom and clean and have a hooded vulva. So I will usually comment on that. I'm going to go and feel the undercarriage or the belly of the dog. On girls, I'm specifically feeling for any kind of mammary tumor. On all dogs, but especially young dogs, I'm feeling for umbilical hernias and inguinal hernias. I will sometimes hold my hand um, right in the inner flank of the dog and feel for a pulse. Um, we feel pulses in that femoral artery of dogs, and I just want to make it sure it's a nice, bounding, strong, normal pulse. Lastly, I am going to palpate the abdomen. Sometimes because they're nervous, they are tensing their abdominal muscles, and I can't feel a thing. This is occasionally the case with a cat too, especially a fat cat. Cats are actually much easier to palpate. We can do it with one hand and usually feel individual kidneys. We can slip the intestines through our fingers, feel for a bladder. So cats are definitely easier to palpate than dogs, but we are palpating both. So obviously, we're going to take a deeper dive into something that we see as suspicious. For example, if we see that a dog has saliva staining in their paws, we're going to pick up each paws and really look at the nail bed and dig into all the nooks and crannies of those feet. Or if you as a client say, hey, I'm concerned my dog is doing this, he's licking his feet, he's doing whatever, we're going to investigate that further. But this procedure, this kind of nose to tail, feeling all over, palpating the abdomen, that's going to be the basics exam that we're going to do on your annual physical exam. And believe it or not, we can do that in like two to three minutes. And it is very thorough. And I apologize that we're not always clear about every single thing we're checking. Again, thank you for trusting us that we are doing that. I just wanted to explain a little more detailed our process. If your pet is in for a lameness exam, we're going to take them out in the hallway. We're going to watch them move. If your dog is in for vomiting and a painful abdomen, we are going to probably grab another doctor to get a second opinion. We're going to palpate really deeply. If you have a dog that possibly has a sore back and is crying out in pain when it goes up and down stairs, we're going to run our hands down the back, try to localize. We're going to check some reflexes to make sure the nerves are firing. So there are other things we do that are very concern specific based on, on what your needs are. If you're coming in for like a 
a specific complaint. All right, we're at the 20-minute mark. You know I like to cut these off here. I'm sorry I talked so fast and that half the time my speech was slurred because I've had like a million cups of coffee this morning. I'd like to remind you that you can get a hold of us at the Marshall Animal Clinic in Marshall, Minnesota, www.marshallanimalclinic.com, or you can call or text in a message, a prescription refill request, a appointment request, or anything you want us to know to 507-537-1537. If you want to reach out to me specifically, I can be reached at examroomrambles at gmail.com. 